Welcome to Apparently, the podcast for absolutely average parents. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Ann and I have been friends for a very long time at WGN. Yeah, we started here in the 90s. I produced Bob Collins and Roy Leonard. And I produced Spike and Cochran. So we spent our 20s as wing women for each other. And it didn't work out very well. But then it did. And we found the right guys and we stood up in each other's weddings. And then we had babies within weeks of each other. And we went from producers to reproducers. We make it look which brings us to this podcast. We want to talk about topics that intrigue us and you and provide some knowledge to other average parents. We're average. We're not experts. So we'll tackle these topics with people who know what they're doing. Yeah, we get the experts. And I fully expect to embarrass myself along the way. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we already have. So welcome to Apparently. We make it look easy. We make it look good. When everybody sees it, they stop and look. Apparently, our 12-year-old girls, or tweens, are about to change everything. We thought the terrible twos were bad, but that's yeah, nothing. <laughs> well, that's nothing compared to what we're about to experience. Get this, they're trying to break up with us. You know, it's funny because already in the last year, I, my daughter's been going into her room and shutting the door. Now, this has never happened before. Like, you know, she'd go up to her room, but now she's shutting the door. And I, I don't know what exactly she's doing with the door shut that she couldn't do with the door open. Perhaps she likes to hang around naked? <laughs> no, I don't think that's it. <laughs> um, do you think she's on her device? That that ding, ding, ding. That's one thing. Uh, YouTubing or something like that. I don't know. I've seen I've gone up in there and she's had makeup on or she's been doing because we have a Jack and Jill bathroom she shares with her brother. Yeah. And I've seen her in the bath. I've gone up. You know, I knock and I go in and see what what's going on up here because I call down from upstairs. We don't have an intercom system. My intercom is Kate. Yeah. It's time for dinner. You know, that kind of stuff. Yes, exactly. So there's an article in the New York Times I was reading recently about a teenage allergy season. (laughs) Yeah. But it's not the allergy season. You think of like hay fever. It was an allergy to parents. What? Around 13, kids become allergic to their parents and parents can't do anything right. All right. Like, does Kate give you any eye rolls yet? It's starting to happen, yeah. All right, so Sophie has been eye rolling, I think, since birth. But um, I'm not sure she knows it. I think sometimes it's unintentional. And I don't know what to do about it, because when she rolls her eyes, I'll say, I'll say, hey, change the attitude. And then she'll roll her eyes again. Again. And then I'll say, listen, what am I doing that is making you roll your eyes? Because this is just the way we've always been. And then she'll roll her eyes again. Um, and so I feel like... Um, I feel like we don't, I don't know what I'm doing. So I, I wanted to sort of jump right into our expert. Um, Dr. Lisa Damore writes a monthly column for the New York Times. She's a regular contributor to CBS News and has a New York Times bestseller called Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood. And um, Lisa, we want to thank you so much for joining us. And I first want to stay with, I'm so glad there are only seven. <laughs> Seven stages? <laughs> yeah, just the seven. Seven's a lot. So thanks for joining us. You can probably start right away. Am I supposed to acknowledge the eye roll or not? Well, it depends. Um, and I did. I wrote a piece for the Times a few years back called Why Teenage Girls Roll Their Eyes, where I really tried to unpack all of the various meanings. And I think sometimes it is meant as a sign of disrespect. I really do think that sometimes teenagers use it. And adults sometimes use it to be openly disrespectful. 
And so I think in those moments, it's really important for parents to say like, hey, you know, knock it off or we don't do that or I'm going to pretend like I didn't see that, you know, or something that draws a line. Um, and acknowledges that what just happened was over that line. So to, to maintain respect on both sides, right? So we're not... On both sides, yeah. Okay. I also, though, think there's a lot more meanings to eye-rolling than meaning to be outright disrespectful to parents. So an example I can easily conjure up is the idea of, you know, say that you say to your daughter, um... I need you to empty the dishwasher before you go out with your friends, right? And she was just about to head, to head out the door with her friends. If she rolls her eyes and then turns around and empties the dishwasher, I, I think that's one of those moments where as parents we might just let it go. Uh-huh. Right. Pick your battles. Think, yeah, just pick your battles. And I think, you know, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is if a boy huffed and then empty the dishwasher, the parent would consider that a complete triumph. <laughs> right? That's so true. Right. So I'm, one of my first measures is, you know, do we allow this in boys or not? And, and if we do allow it in boys but go after it in girls, that always, for me, is an important piece of information. And I do think that um, there's a lot of times when we absolutely accept that boys will voice or somehow express their disagreement and if, if we can still get them to do what we asked, we are completely pleased. Whereas I think for girls, unwittingly, adults can have um, this expectation that not only will they do what they, we've asked of them, but they will either like it or they will pretend like they like it for our benefit. Now, wow. why? why I, I, that's shocking, but so true. So why do you think we have such different standards for the girls. And, and and also, I should say, you look specifically at teenage girls, and it makes me think maybe you like them, which is shocking to me, too. So what, <laughs> why, why do we have different attitudes for the, for the girls? Well, first of all, just, I mean, I, I love them. I, and teenage girls are my favorite um, creatures on the whole wide planet. And, and I think they're fascinating. And I think there's almost always a logic to their behavior. And if we sort of can step out of the way that it can feel so personal how they act, I think we can make good sense of them. I think that we have the expectation in our culture that girls will be agreeable mm-hmm. and women will be agreeable. And I don't think we have that same expectation for boys and men. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I would agree. Start there. Yeah. And, and Tracy has a little boy, too. I only have girls. So, um, but I totally, I totally expect my girls not only to do what I say, but to be pleasant about it. Right. And, you know, why that second part? I don't know. <laughs> right? And, and again, this is a very fuzzy line because, you know, there is outright disrespect and rudeness, which is not okay. And teenagers know it's not okay, and it's important for parents to articulate that it's not okay. But it's interesting to me because an eye roll is such a small rebellion. Yeah. And it's interesting to me that adults have a very hard time with even that level of rebellion on a girl's part. So um, our daughters are 12, and uh-huh. well, and Anne has a 10-year-old, or 10-year-old nine, is nine. nine. Yep. Um, so they're kind of the tween age. The whole going in, you have the seven stages to adulthood. The um, the step that my daughter's taking of going into her room and shutting the door and this this privacy issue, is that part of one of the stages? Absolutely. It's actually the first one that I talk about, which is parting with childhood. Mm-hmm. So there's seven chapters in the book, one per stage. And, 
here's the title. So there's parting with childhood, joining a new tribe, harnessing emotions, contending with adult authority, planning for the future, entering the romantic world, and mm. caring for themselves. Okay, that so, romantic thing, let's just table that. Okay. <sighs> yeah, nobody wants to talk about that. <laughs> but the way I sort of think about it is these are the jobs of adolescents. These are the things they have to do to grow up and to be healthy grown-ups. Um, when I was working on the book, my editor kept saying, are these happening in an order or are they happening all at once? Good question. And I kept saying back, yes, yes <laughs> to both. You know, they're kind of all running at the same time, but they do sort of unfold in this sequence. So I begin the book with parting with childhood because that's usually when parents suddenly realize they've got a teenager on their hands where their teenage daughter or son you know, no longer lets you call them that cute little name you used to call them when they were little. It doesn't let you touch them in front of their friends, you know, or at home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all of a sudden that, that shift happens. And one of the most universal markers of that shift is that they go in their rooms and they close the door and they're in there for hours with the door closed. Hours. And hours. And it's so weird because... It wasn't know, like that a year ago. ago. <laughs> yeah. It was wide open. Um And so the way I think about this is that somewhere in a child's mind, a calculation is made where they realize, I have lived at home for twice as long as I have yet to live here. You know, I'm 12, I'm leaving around 18. And that's a sort of a stunning, I think, realization, even if it's not altogether conscious. And so I think that what teenagers do is they think, Okay, I'm going to be leaving. I'm going to practice moving out. So let's say that my room is my apartment. You know, this is all unspoken, but I think this is what happens. Let's say that my room is my apartment and I live here. And you adults are now the landlords who inexplicably knock. (laughs) Like I'm living my life doing my thing. And then out of nowhere, you knock on the door. And, you know, of course, all of this is notwithstanding that you are still feeding this child and driving them everywhere and everything like that. Right. And and I think that for them, this is the first attempt at independence. And it makes sense if you see it that way, because the alternative would be that they stay as embedded in family life, as intimate with what, us as they were as children. And then one day they look up and they say, oh, never mind, I'm off to college. Right. So this is sort of a stepwise fashion of moving out. Um, but I don't think the parents are ever ready for it. And I don't. I don't think teenagers are consciously aware that this is what's happening. Are these steps to adulthood? Are they? Um, they're linear in fashion. Are they like um, t- same same amount of time spent at each stage, or is it like sometimes you blow through this one and it's a non non issue and it, you move on to the next one? I think it's more the second of what you said. That you know, I think the way I see it is there's these seven developmental tasks. And teenagers are making their way along them in the course of adolescence. And some kids move very fast through some. Um, some kids get stuck on one. You know, they're all sort of occurring simultaneously, but they are arranged in my book in the way that they tend to become a big deal. So, you know, sixth grade, it tends to be a pretty big deal, parting with childhood. Seventh grade, joining a new tribe tends to be the big deal. You know, eighth grade, you know, 12, 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, harnessing emotions, is really ripe with girls um, because puberty is happening. Their emotions are on steroids, you know, and that, you know, and it kind of progresses from there. Um, There are 
17-year-olds I've taken care of who had all seven tasks accomplished last year. You know, like they are complete grown-ups. They are completely in charge of themselves and their lives. They take great care of themselves. They know where they're going. They have healthy friendships. They're completely autonomous. And I've taken care of 25-year-olds who are struggling with four of these stages still. Wow. So I have a question about... um what it was for us when we were teens and what it is for them and how technology changes things. Because when they're in the their apartments with the doors closed, they have access to so much more than we did. And in some ways, it's a good thing. I think some some ways it's a bad thing. But I think they can be uh, measuring themselves against their peers endlessly. How how should we monitor their social media or their technology and and is that something we should should we be monitoring it okay so you just put like 17 really important topics on the <laughs> sorry um no that's quite right so i think it's much more stressful to be a teenager now than it ever was and i think for exactly the reason you say which is they are plugged in and connected to their social worlds all the time and as fun as that is it's also very very taxing And then it's, of course, not always fun. So there's that. Um, They are looking at and comparing themselves to one another all day. Mm -hmm. Um, We did it all day long at school. We got home. We couldn't see each other. We got a break. Yep. So I think there's some realities to that. Um, I am probably the least prescriptive psychologist on the planet. Like I, I, I very rarely say, here's what I think parents should do. Um, I think there's too many variables. Kids are too different. Parents are too different. Family life is very, um, you know, unique to each family. That said, the one rule I would recommend families make, and it's much easier to make with a younger teenager than an older one, is that technology actually doesn't go in their bedrooms. Okay. Um, Interesting. And, and Yeah, and I'm surprised. I mean, that is a pretty rigid rule, and it's unusual for me to suggest one. Um, there are, of course, some situations where that's not an option. You know, say families that live in small apartments and the bedroom is the only quiet place where a teenager can do their homework. You know, that's a different situation. Mm-hmm. But um, once technology crosses the threshold of a bedroom, all sorts of problems start to crop up. So one is they are in there at great length for a long time um, without somebody walking by, you know. I mean, if they're in the kitchen, it's just different if they're mm-hmm. looking at their technology. Um, the other is it profoundly interferes with the ability to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And and it does it in a few different ways. You know, some the easy way, obviously, is if they just are staying up awake playing on their technology or engaged with their technology. Obviously, that interferes with sleep. Another factor that interferes with sleep is that um, even if they shut it down, there are a lot of kids, and we have this from the data, whose technology wakes them up through the night. Mm-hmm. You know, that they're getting texts and then they hear them and check them. Mm -hmm. A third factor is that even if they shut it down and try to go to sleep, often what they last saw on technology may kind of get them amped up. You know, it's the same as if you, you know, check your email right before bed and there's a message from your boss saying, we need to meet tomorrow. You know, those kinds of things. Your mind starts reeling. up for an hour. Right. So teenagers, you know, it's very easy for them to find things on social media that, oh, my gosh, she likes him. I didn't know she liked him. You know, I like him. You know, I mean, like whatever it is. And then the last factor, which everybody should be aware of by now, is the light alone from technology is Mm -hmm. highly stimulating and makes it hard for kids to go to sleep when they've been exposed to it for a while before they try to go to sleep. It's an uphill battle. 
It really it is. is because is. we have a rule of no no phones in the bedroom, like oh. at, after seven o'clock or whatever. Yeah. And um, but I look at my daughter's phone, and at ten thirty at night on a school night, there's kids texting or house party yeah. or doing oh, these gosh. things, and I'm like, oh, what? Yeah. Like, aren't we, you supposed to be sleeping? It's ten thirty. <laughs> no, it's a really um, it's a real challenge. I will say. People don't protect sleep enough. They don't protect their own and they don't protect their kids. And one of the things, I have a book coming out um, in about seven months about stress and anxiety in girls because we are just seeing these, you know, really high rates of stress and anxiety. And there's a ton of explanations. I've got a book full of explanations. But one of the simplest explanations that people are very quick to overlook is sleep deprivation. Hmm. Um Teenagers need, and, and this is not talked about enough, in middle school, they still need 10 hours of sleep a night. And in high school, they're supposed to be getting nine. Wow. I know for a fact that is not happening. Right. And and I think people really sort of, um, I don't know that that's a widely known number. You know, I don't think those numbers have gotten into the you know popular culture in the way they should. I think people feel like eight is acceptable. Well, eight is acceptable for most grownups. Right. But um, middle school, 10, high school, nine. And so anything short of that, you have a sleep-deprived kid. I remember and, when the kids were yeah. babies, uh, yeah. I would go on um, babycenter.com or these you know parenting websites and be like, six months, how much are they supposed to be sleeping? Yeah. How long should their naps be? All this stuff. I was paying attention. But when was the last time anyone looked at how old, how long a seven-year-old should be sleeping? Or you, know, well, you stop doing that after they're toddlers. Yeah, and if you go look at the American Pediatrics Association, they have the numbers I have. So... If you want, you know, if we want to address things like stress, anxiety, and depression, a great place to start is on sleep. And so, the first step to that is taking technology out of yeah. the bedroom. Okay. Or having it never cross the threshold, because I will give you a fifth reason why it interferes. When kids use their beds as offices, it actually makes it hard for them to fall asleep in that same bed later in the day. I think that's true for adults too. Yes. It's true for everybody. It's actually true for all mammals, that yeah. we associate what we do with where we do it. Right. And so you want the bed to only be associated with restfulness, getting in and falling asleep. Because then when we get in bed, that it's actually almost like a Pavlovian response. You know, this sort of like, oh, every time I'm in bed, the next thing that always happens is that I fall asleep. That actually helps sleep to happen. Kids will get in beds, and sometimes grown-ups will get in their bed, and they'll have, you know, movies that they're watching, and they'll be texting with their friends, and they're doing their homework, and they're doing all these other crazy things. And not crazy, but just, you know, not bed things. Right. And then they, like, roll over and try to go to sleep, and the body's thinking, why are we trying to sleep at the office? We never sleep at the office. So um, I would – I know that I, I – it's I, I'm going to say it again. I almost never make blanket rules. There's a lot of good science behind the idea of don't let the tech cross the threshold of the bedroom at any time of day. Hmm. Okay. Another thing you have you've mentioned in uh, in your writing, um, the idea when we were growing up, we wanted to be popular. I mean, ever, uh -huh. as far as I know, um, at, but you define you put a distinction between popular and powerful. Ex explain the difference and why we should be asking our girls. Yeah. Uh, the messages they're getting from their friends and in their social circles. So 
this is where social scientists can be so fabulously useful, you know, where they, they think to ask a question that no one's thought to ask and they get an answer that everybody immediately understands. So in the book, I, um, I cite this research that went, um, where a researcher went and really asked students, you know, middle schoolers, like, when you call somebody popular, like, what does that mean? And they actually got back two different answers. So kids said, well, sometimes it means that's a really likable person, you know, that people want to be with them, they enjoy their company, they want to hang out with them. And sometimes it means somebody that everybody's scared of, like everybody knows that they've got social power and they're willing to be mean and they're willing to be mean to maintain their social power. And that's, you know, that I think that distinction is immediately recognizable to, you know, anyone who's been in the middle school. And it's a huge difference between the super likable kids and the kids who are, um, you know, willing to abuse their social power. And so I was writing Untangled when my own daughter, my own older daughter, was headed into sixth grade. And then as I kept writing, she was moving into the seventh grade, and the word popular started to come in mm-hmm. to our house and into our conversations. And because I was working on the book, I said to her, oh, wait, you know, and she would talk about this kid or this kid or this kid. And I would say, well, is she popular or is she powerful, mm-hmm. right? Is like she liked or do kids get nervous around her? And my daughter, and I have found that all kids can do this, could immediately sort the kids that she was calling popular into those two different categories. Totally. And it's helpful because then the basic advice is avoid the powerful kids. <laughs> like just, just stay, cut them a wide berth because most of them grow up and, you know, even if they're kind of turkeys in the seventh grade, they often, you know, mature in the eighth and certainly in the ninth and tenth and they go on to be wonderful people. They're best avoided in the seventh grade and it's a lot easier for kids to avoid them if we stop calling them popular. Because I think as soon as a kid has the label popular, it's almost like it comes with a tractor beam. You know, other kids want to be near that. Yes. So it's important to make that distinction. Well, and also then the, your own child, if not uh, deemed worthy by the powerful, has a sense of her worth being less when that has yes. that's not true at all. Right. So she says, okay, so the powerful kid who's willing to be mean isn't, you know, my best friend. That's okay. I'll yeah. hang out over here with these nice kids. So we have we have twelve year olds. Um, so we're we're tweens. We're we're going into middle school. At least my daughter's is at middle school. It's, uh, she's it's all K through eight at, oh. at, in Chicago. Okay. So um, the erratic behavior you you talk about. How, how can we handle? How do we handle that when one like it, I feel like my head's going to spin for the next couple of years. Well, probably. Um, <laughs> oh. I think. I think there's a couple of things that um, it's helpful for adults to know. So one is adolescence really does begin at 11, even though we say teenager and everybody thinks that means 13. We have historically for 100 years marked the beginning of adolescence at around age 11. Okay. So I think it's important to say that as often as I can because otherwise I think parents feel like, oh, my gosh, this is all happening so fast and so soon and so early when their 11-year-old starts to act like a teenager. But in fact, it's not. It's normal and expectable. That's okay. good to know. It is good to know because you feel like, oh my gosh, if we're getting out of the gate so fast, what's ahead? But yeah. you're not out of the gate so fast. Okay. The other thing that's really helpful to know is that emotionality, for girls especially, peaks at around 13. Okay. Um, and so it can come on fast. And it usually regulates from there. So 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 
especially girls, are steadier than 13-year-olds. And so I know I'm not telling you, you know, great news for this coming year for you, (laughs) but... It's really helpful if you know, like, you're peaking already, right? Because Phew. I think also parents think, like, oh, my gosh, at 13, she seems so emotional, and we just started adolescence. So that's not, you know, you've got, you're, you're good. That's, that's great news, though. I mean, I, I have never heard that, and I don't do as much research as I probably should, but um, that makes me feel so much better. It's like the first, you know, 12 weeks of, of the baby's life, and they say that, you know... They, You're a hot mess it, during that time. Right, and they, yeah. they say they peak at six weeks, and then by the 12th week, they're a little bit less crazy, the Sleeping kids. Sleeping through the yeah. night. Yeah, so now I can think of 13 as, as going to be the, the top, but then we can settle down. Yes, you will definitely settle down. And 14-year-olds have completely different brains than 13-year-olds. And the brain of a 14-year-old is my favorite thing on the planet because they are still goofy kid-like and yet totally brilliant and insightful at the same time. That's so cool. there's a lot of fun to come. But So here's what I would say about your 13-year-old, um, your 12 to 13-year-old. Expect meltdowns. Seen them. No matter Been what there. you do, there will be meltdowns. Yep. And... And I think one of the things that I feel that psychologists and public experts, and I'm very much in that category, I feel we've not done a good enough job of saying is normal development is super bumpy, and there will be meltdowns, and that's okay. Um, I worry that we've given parents the impression that if they just do this or just do that, they're going to have a really smooth road. That is not how this works. Um, Your daughter will have meltdowns no matter what you do, and that's okay. Your job is to remain calm and supportive in the face of that meltdown. And um, one of the things I talk about this and one of the things I've written is that it's very, very helpful if there's a parent who is able to be present without intervening or without trying to fix it. So um, some, like one of the phrases I offer in Untangled is, you know, is there anything I can do that won't make this worse? You know, is a very nice way to say, like, I can take it, you can take it, I'm here, I'm not going anywhere. Um, another thing a friend of mine does, and I think this is so smart, and it really helped when her daughter was 13, um, she and her daughter both liked drinking tea. And so she had this huge collection of tea on hand all the time. And so then when her daughter was having a hard time of any kind, her mom would say, do you want some tea? Right? And then the girl said, oh, I don't know, I don't know. And she said, well, let me get out the box of tea. And then they would spend time like, do you want caffeine or no caffeine? Do you want this kind of And it was a way of being totally present and totally there without stepping in in a way that felt intrusive or like, why are you melting down or the parent freaking out? So I think, you know, get ready for meltdowns and um, just be willing to be there and be steady. Lisa, are we supposed to say, um, this just happened to me uh, with a kid who doesn't melt down, but um, our car battery died and we had to get home and she was totally freaking out and and she cried, and I said, "What? We're, we live in the city. We, you know, we could have easily just gotten a cab." Yeah. But she was, she was crying, and I said, "Why are you crying? This is not the end of, yeah. Any, like, there's nothing wrong here. We're just going to wait because I, I have to drive you to school tomorrow." But uh, should I not even ask? Should I just say, "I get that you're really frustrated." Oh, no, because I don't even know if I get that she's really frustrated. Well. <laughs> I mean, did, was she able to say anything, or did she say, I don't know why I'm crying? She said, I don't know why I'm crying. Yeah, they don't know. Okay, so here's what, here's, this is what's so fascinating. So this is a neurological event. So in the course around 12 to 13, there's a major 
remodeling of the brain that occurs for teenage girls, especially. It's sort of triggered by puberty. So for girls, it's a little earlier. And the brain becomes much faster and much more powerful and much more efficient. It remodels in the order in which it originally developed, which is from the primitive brain stem up to the frontal cortex, which sits behind the forehead. Mm -hmm. Their emotions, all human emotions, are really housed in the primitive brain stem. And their ability to maintain perspective is up in the frontal cortex. So there is a period, and this is why 13-year-olds are so emotional, where their brains are very gawky, where the emotion centers have been upgraded and are ultra-powerful, and the perspective-maintaining centers are not yet upgraded. So it happens, and you can actually explain this to a teenager, and I usually don't try to pull back the veil on teenagers about what's going on for them developmentally, but they, this is a great relief to them when you explain that it's a neurological mismatch that doesn't last too long, but when, it, when, it's, when they're in it, it's ugly. Yeah. Um, so what happens for them is they become upset, and their emotions just hijack the whole system and can bring it down. And... And I have watched 13-year-olds absolutely melt about something that they know is silly, they know it's not a big deal, and just say, like, I don't know what's happening to me. I don't know what's wrong. And I think it's probably not worth trying to give them the neuroscience lesson in the middle of it. I think just offer tea. But then I think later, say, look, hon, your brain is, like, doing this incredible remodeling project, but while it's underway, your feelings can actually hijack the whole system. That's great. That's great to know. Um, so I, I read an article you wrote about four truths that make raising teens easier. Um, teens need time alone. I think we talked about that with the apartment. Complaining isn't unusual. Teens hear you even when their eyes roll, and teenage quirks don't last. Is that sort of how we should console ourselves? Yes, yes. Um, and that article was titled, No, Your Teenager Doesn't Hate You, It's Just Summer. And it was a piece I wrote for the New York Times a year ago. Um, and... I think, you know, if I had to sort of describe everything I ever write and everything I ever say and everything I ever do, my aim is to help parents take their teenagers less personally. That's that's um, definitely a problem. <laughs> but so it she's, is. she's a psychologist and for adolescents, but she's really a psychologist for, for us. For me. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be rock. I'll be rocking in the fetal position for the next four years, I'm telling you right now. No, no, you should enjoy this. But it's a lot easier to enjoy if you don't feel like your ad- your teenager is doing their adolescence to you, mm-hmm. right? I think right. that's how it sometimes feels. I think the way we want to see it is they have a big, complex developmental job, and we are along for the ride. But my aim in writing Untangled and in the pieces I do for the New York Times is to help parents stand in their teenager's shoes and understand what's happening so that it doesn't feel so personal. And the title of the book is Untangled. Is that Are you trying to untangle the teenagers or untangle our relationships with them? Well, spoiler alert. So in the conclusion of the book, I say, you know, though this book has been about trying to untangle these developmental strands, you know, obviously it is as much about trying to disentangle ourselves as parents from this developmental moment so that we can see it more neutrally, can take it less personally, um, and can be more helpful than if we know what's going on. This totally changes my perspective and where I sit and look at it. If I, if I look at it this way, I think it would be a whole lot more palatable and, and, uh-huh. and livable. Yeah. <laughs> this way rather than, cause I, I do feel like sometimes I do take it personally when, 
there's an eye roll or when she'd prefer to be up in her room by herself uh, with the door closed rather than hanging out in the kitchen with me. Yeah. But it's it's their job to need us less. Right. Yeah. And and that's scary, too. (laughs) It is scary, too. But like, think about this really hard job they have to do, which is they have to become independent while living with us. That's really a kind of crazy challenge. Right. Because they're right, they're right, they're right there. They're right, I can touch right them. There. They're right next to me. And they do depend on us. And they need to depend on us. And yet, side by side with that, they're supposed to become these independent adult people who can walk out of the house at 18 and manage themselves. So if we think about it that way, if we take them and us out of it and just think about the task that we are asking them to accomplish... Of course they're going to close their doors. Of course they're going to push us away. Of course they're going to be awkward and weird. Of course they're going to act like they're allergic to us sometimes. <laughs> well, uh, I actually checked your book out of the library, and I'm halfway through it right now. So I, I really appreciate all the um, the examples you give in the book. It's very helpful when you hear it in the context. Of, you know, sometimes research is great, but when you hear about a mom coming into your office saying X, Y, and Z about their daughter – that's impactful for me because then I'm like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> oh, good. That's helpful to hear. I'm, I'm just um, polishing up the final draft of my next book, and I was sitting here deciding which story to keep and which to lose. So maybe I'll keep them both. Oh, good. Yeah, do, do. <laughs> well, so, th- so Dr. Lisa Damore, uh, author of Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls and Their Mothers Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood. And not really the mother's part. Um, but we, I- I'm going to buy your book because I'm going to uh, read it every day for the next four years, then give it to someone. But we so appreciate you coming on. And um, I think we'll be calling you when the next book comes out. Sure. It comes out February 12th of next year. It's called Under Pressure. Um, confronting the epidemic of stress and anxiety in girls. It's already up on Amazon um, if you want to take a look at the cover. But I would be thrilled to come back. Super. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Lisa. Take care. Bye-bye. So apparently it's not going to be quite as bad as I thought. Yeah, hearing that it it peaks at 13, we're almost there. I know. (laughs) Except that then we have the other people coming up behind them. That's true. That's true. But I think once you've been through it once, right? Yeah. It's always better... The second time, because we're making our mistakes with I know. the oldest. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the second ones are easy. Did our parents really spend as much time thinking about all this stuff as we do? Hell no. I don't think so. No. I don't, but, you know, I don't think they had time. My mom had four kids and worked. And also, they didn't have the Google. Yeah. <laughs> Technology. Yeah, I, I agree. So I, I say this to my mom all the time. I'm like... Did you worry about X or did you, did this happen to you? And it's just like, it was so different 30 years ago, 40 years ago, that it's just, it's crazy. Yeah. And I maybe better, but you know, we can't go back. We've got to, we've got to work with what we've got. It is what it is, right? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Tracy Weiner. And I'm Ann Johnson. This is Apparently. We make it look easy.